For God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever places faith in His Son Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life. The most important thing that we can do is place our faith in Jesus. But we have to make sure that we're placing our faith in the authentic, actual, real Jesus and not the Jesus of our own imagining. Not the Jesus of our own wishing. We live in a world where too many people don't understand who Jesus really is and what Jesus really did for us, but instead they want to place their faith in a Jesus of their own image. A Jesus who might tear down Rome or whichever government they don't like. A Jesus that might topple inequitable power structures. A Jesus that might say whatever our itching ears want to hear. We must make sure that we place our faith in the authentic, real Jesus. Today, we will turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Mark 15 now, because here we read about the authentic Jesus. We will read about the brutality that was leveled against King Jesus. We will see in detail what Jesus suffered so that the Word of God may be accomplished. Jesus is an atonement sacrifice. He's our sacrifice and that means we can be at one with God. He is our Passover lamb who is slain for us and whose blood covers us so that the wrath of God might pass over us. In passing over us, it lands fully and squarely on Him. And the man, the divine man, Jesus, bears the weight of our sin and the wrath of God is poured out on Him. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of Scripture today? Mark chapter 15, verses 15 through 32. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him in the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. They said, If you are King of the Jews, save yourself. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests, in the same way, sorry, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. And this word is not fun and glorious in and of itself, and yet it bespeaks of something that transcends the physical transpirings. We hear about Jesus being brutalized and crucified, but we recognize the truth of what's happening here. Can you see it? Can you see the love of God drives the death of God? Can you see that in this text? For the love that God has for us inspired the Heavenly Father to send His Son. The King of Heaven stepped off His throne and came to earth to die in our place. And we needed Him to die in our place for all have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned. Every single one of us has tried to do what God wants or and failed or we have just flat out rebelled against God. Each and every one of us. And because of that rebellion, because of missing the mark of God's holiness, we deserve punishment. The reason that we deserve punishment is because we have sinned against the holy and perfect infinite God. And the holy, perfect, infinite God can't be around sin. And so the punishment rendered unto us that satisfies the wrath of God is the shedding of blood. But if we take the punishment that sheds our blood, then we are separated from God. But God does not want us to be separated from Him. He wants us to live with Him evermore. And so the Father sent the Son. And the Son, King Jesus, lived a perfect and sinless human life. And even though He had no sin, the Father made Him become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Can you see the love of God drives the death of God? Now, as we focus on the death, we know the outcome. We know that in a few weeks' time, we will celebrate the glory of the resurrection, for there ain't no grave that can hold his body down. And if he walked out, I'm walking out too. We know the truth, but in order to celebrate the truth that drives our lives of love to reach out to a dying world, we must celebrate the love of God that drives the death of God. And so as we go through the text today, Ask yourself, can I see it? Can I see it in the fulfilled prophecy? Can I see it in the shed blood? Can I see it in what he endured on our behalf? Am I placing my faith in the authentic Jesus? Or have I made a Jesus in my own image that I falsely place my faith in? Let's go to Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Remember from the previous weeks of Clay's good sermons that we see that Pilate already had two strikes against him when Jesus was brought before him. 
We heard about the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, and we heard about how Jesus was brought before Pilate. And Pilate says, I don't find any charge against this guy. There's nothing wrong with him. And he wanted to turn him free. He wanted to set him loose. But the Jews fought back and they said, no, 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 no. They wanted him dead for blasphemy because he claimed to be the unique son of God. He claimed to be equal to God. But Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. He doesn't care about that. But what he does care about is insurrection. If you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar. Isn't he your king? Pilate says, no, no, no. we have no king but Caesar. And so if you let him go, that's going to be strike three for you there, buddy. And so instead, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate lets Barabbas go. Now, Barabbas was an actual insurrectionist. He was a zealot who literally got arrested for seeking to overthrow the Roman government by attacking and brutalizing Roman soldiers. And he and his cohorts were arrested, and they demand that this guy get let out instead of Jesus. And so Jesus was flogged. That's what it says. He had Jesus flogged. Now, flogging is a brutal, brutal practice. It's where Jesus is scourged or whipped, but this is no Indiana Jones whip that cracks as you bring it down. No, no, no. Flogging is very, very different. Flogging involves a flagrum or a flagellum. And in the Roman world, the Roman centurions and soldiers were skilled executioners, and they would take a wooden handle that had three or four, sometimes more, uh, leather ropes hanging off of it. And at the end of these ropes would be an iron or a lead ball. Now, when this was whacked against you, this would cause tremendous pain as these balls whip around and hit your body, bruising your body, breaking skin. But to make it even worse, they put sheep bone or other bones and tied it into the rope strands. And instead of a cracking whip motion, what they would do for a person who was flogged is they would tie him up to a post with his arms hugging a post or above his head like this. And then the Roman soldier would, not gently, but he would flap the whip over the body of Jesus, which would hurt enough, but then came the real torture. In a violent downward jerking motion, he would rip so that the bone shards which had gotten into the body of the victim would pull back, revealing skin, shedding blood, exposing nerve. Now, this happens upwards of 40 times. It gets whacked on him and then ripped down. It comes around the side and tears flesh, not just from his back, but from his side and even from his front torso. Flogging was enough to kill a man. In fact, the Romans had to put limitations on how hard and how often and how many times they would flog somebody because very often you could flog somebody to death. So they said 40 is about the max that we can flog somebody without them dying because they don't want Jesus to die yet. They don't want any execution victim to die yet. Crucifixion is the end game. The Romans were very skilled executioners, but they were skilled at inefficiency. Oh, they didn't want somebody to die right away. You're going to challenge Rome? We're going to let everyone see what you've done. And sometimes victims of crucifixion would hang for three days before they finally expired. Don't kill them with flogging. Make it a humiliating, horribly brutal, violent time. That's what happened. They flogged him. 
Forty times the flagellum came and ripped his skin. Well, verse 17 says that they put a robe on him, a purple robe, and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Of course they would use a purple robe because Jesus was claiming, or the Jews were claiming that Jesus was the king of the Jews. That was the charge against him. And so purple is the color of royalty. So they would put a purple robe over him, but this was no act of kindness. When you put a linen purple robe over somebody whose flesh has been flayed and exposed and you put it on him, the congealing blood serves as a glue-like substance that connects it to the fibers of the linen. And so it's painful to have this on you. And then they put a crown of thorns on him. But don't, don't, don't be misled. Don't think about the thorns that are in your beautiful rose bushes around your house. No, no. Judean thorns are of a different sort. Judean thorns can be three to five inches long. Judean thorns are thick, they are strong, and when you twist this together into a crown-like shape and press it into somebody's head, it's not just resting atop his hair. No, it is driven into his skin such that these Judean thorns break the skin and they press in and blood starts to come out. Now, the last time Jesus had blood dripping from his forehead was the night before in the garden as he prayed so hard that he sweat drops of blood. And now, against his will, the crown of thorns is being pressed into him, pushed down, brutalizing and humiliating him. And in fact, that's exactly what this was designed to. It was designed to mock and humiliate him. In fact, verses 18 and 19 describe just that. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! With as much sarcasm and snark as they possibly could. And again and again they struck him in the head with a staff. For they'd given him a staff as a mockery of a royal scepter. And then ripping it from his hands, it was better up. And they would smack him in the head, in the face, with a wooden staff. Occasionally, a blow would hit near the top, driving a Judean thorn deeper into the flesh above his skull. And then they spit on him. But the Bible doesn't fully describe this in the best way it could. It's actually using a continual present participle in the Greek. It's best translated as, and they kept on spitting on him. It wasn't just once or twice. It was a continual sign of disrespect to spit upon him every time he was hit. To spit upon him and let the spittle run down mixed with blood so that this man and all who are witnessing this man being executed in front of them will take note. And falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. But it was a fake homage. We know that because the very next verse 20 says, once they had mocked him. It was a mockery. It was a mockery. All this was done to set up this Jesus who claims to be king of the Jews, who really is king of heaven. His kingdom is not around here. And to make fun of him. And then they took off the purple robe, which had now been dyed scarlet with blood. And this was no act of kindness because when you take the linen robe off of him, which has been bloodily congealed to his skin, it rips all the wounds afresh. Do you know how long they were spitting on him and mocking him and on their knees paying false homage and smacking him with the stick? It goes on and on and on. Enough time for the blood on the wounds 
to start clinging to the fibers and you rip them off and expose them again. And then you put his clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him. And this is just the warm-up. This isn't even the main event. This is merely the opening act. But don't miss and gloss over that little phrase, and they led him out to crucify him. In fact, Mark 15, 20, which ends with, they, then they led him out to crucify him, should help us understand another verse from Mark, this time from chapter 8 in a whole new way. A verse that many of us have used many, many times. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sometimes we read that verse as, oh, we take up our cross and just follow smiling, bearded, miraculous Jesus who leads us around doing good deeds. That is not what this verse talks about. This verse is the same as Mark 15, 20. They led him out to crucify him. The way it would work is that the Roman centurion, along with his assistants next to him, would march down with the titulus, which is the sign that lays out the charge. In this case, King of the Jews. And they would march down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. They would march through Jerusalem, outside, let everyone see what's going on, see who it is. And the crucified man, or soon-to-be-crucified man, had to follow, carrying sometimes the 75 five to hundred pound patabulum, the cross beam of the cross. And they marched out in front and made him follow behind. Anyone who would be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is Jesus saying, I'm leading the black macabre parade of the death of self. Follow me. We have to be willing to carry our patabulum, our cross beam, to our own death. But it is not our physical death, it is our death to self. Every single morning I wake up and selfishness has crept back in. Every single day I wake up and I want to indulge the pleasures of the flesh. I want to indulge the pride of sin, the sin of pride. I want these different things. And if I'm going to be Jesus' disciple, I need to follow him out to my death. It's not following smiley Jesus who leads me to do good deeds. It's following him to my execution of my selfish desires. That's what it means to follow him. Well, verse 21 continues. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, who was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. The reason they forced him to carry the cross is because Jesus has already been flogged. Jesus has uniquely been added crown of thorns. He's probably losing significant amounts of blood that are drip, that's dripping down him. He's been beaten, spit upon, brutalized, mocked, and now he's forced to carry a 75-pound rugged piece of wood. It's not trimmed. It's not, it's not hewn. It's just this horrible, riggedy wood. And he has to carry it over? Of course he's going to fall. He's not going to be able to do so. And because he can't continue the black parade of the march to his own death, they call this other guy. They see, because the centurions, they, know, they can't just get some regular Jew from Jerusalem to do this. They wouldn't want to start a riot. They have to get an outsider. And you know where Cyrene is. It's down, in, it's down in Africa. They get this guy who looks different from everyone else. This guy who's come to Jerusalem so that he can participate in one of the three great festivals that every year Jews are supposed to make pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. They find this guy who looks different from the crowd and they say you pick it up and follow him he didn't want any part of this this guy named Simon he didn't want any part of it but they compelled him to pick up the cross of Christ and follow him 
Now, we're told about Simon that he has two sons, Rufus and Alexander. This is probably the same Rufus that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 16. You see, Rufus and Alexander became very well-known Christians. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have had Mark put it into the gospel. Who cares what this guy's kid's name are unless everybody knows who this guy's kids are? They're leaders in the early church. For this event changed Simon's life. He was compelled to serve Christ by carrying his cross. And it changed everything about him. It became the watermark turning point of his life. And he pointed back not only to his children, but to all who would listen the day that he carried the cross of Christ and watched Jesus die. Experienced the risen Lord Jesus later, became a Christian, and raised his boys in the faith. Oh yeah, everybody knew who Alexander and Rufus were. But this verse says more about somebody who wasn't there. His name was Simon. Where was the other Simon? Where was Simon Peter? This verse is a silent indictment that screams deafeningly loud against Simon Peter, the rock upon which Jesus would build the church, the same man who pulls swords and cuts off high priest servants' ears and says, I'll never deny you, even if it costs me my life. Well, now that it's costing Jesus his life, that Simon is nowhere to be found. A replacement Simon is needed to carry the cross. May it never be in our lives that someone has to replace us for we have flaked out and shirked our duty. Anyone who would follow me must be my disciple, must take up his cross and follow me. Don't let somebody replace you because you weren't there to do what Christ was compelling. We must be there in the good and in the bad. For the authentic Jesus is not some genie that makes it such that we never suffer again. The authentic Jesus is one who knows what it is to suffer. So whatever you're suffering, whatever is plaguing your life, He knows. He can identify with us. He is our perfect high priest. He knows. So carry the cross and don't let someone else have to do the job Jesus called you to do. Well, verse 22 says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Golgotha is a very harsh-sounding word. Golgotha, the place of the skull. You might know it by its much softer-sounding name, the name that we get to sing in some of the old great hymns, On a hill far away, Calvary. Yeah, Golgotha is Calvary. Golgotha is the Greek for place of the skull, and Calvary is Latin for place of the skull. Golgotha and Calvary are the same. It's the place of the skull. Now, some of us were just there a couple weeks ago. And, and that first picture, the one with the camel, is taken right outside the north wall of Jerusalem, the Damascus Gate. So anybody walking from Damascus to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Damascus would have seen this spot. Everybody would have known it. It looks like a skull in the hill. And then there are some more modern pictures that get it across. They brought Jesus to the place of the skull. That's where this is going to go down. That's where Jesus is going to die. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Can you remember the last time that Jesus was offered myrrh? That's right. All the way at the beginning of the gospel, along with frankincense and gold, because it was always the case that Jesus was meant to die for our sins. Can you see how the love of God drives the death of God? He did not take it. 
The reason he did not take it is because myrrh, when mixed with mine, it creates a very galling taste. That's not why. It also provides an analgesic so that you don't feel the same pain. In fact, the Jews knew this all the way from Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are in anguish. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Jesus wasn't going to take that. He needed to be in full control of his faculties and he needed to understand in every fiber of his being what was happening and why he was doing what he was doing. He needed to let sure, make sure that the blood flowing from him was purposeful and he was not going to do anything but have a sober mind in it. In fact, the Bible tells us that God purchased the church for himself with his own blood. Can you see it? The love of God driving the death of God? He had to experience it fully, for this is authentic Jesus. Well, the next verse, 24, it just says, and they crucified him. Four tiny words. There's no description of what crucifixion is. There's no elaboration, because every single person in the first century reading Mark's gospel would have seen crucifixion happen. Every single person would have seen ten, hundreds, thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of crucified dead people. This was the Romans' favorite form of crucifixion, or favorite form of execution. Crucifixion. And they don't describe it. So I'm going to describe it a little bit. Jesus, having been flogged, having the crown of thorns pressed into his head, dripping blood, having been spit upon and brutalized with a staff to the face repeatedly, carrying a 75-pound crossbeam, the patabulum, unable to do so, is finally taken to the place of the skull. It is laid down along with the stipes. The stipes is the vertical piece of the cross. And it is laid down and assembled together. The victim, in this case Jesus, would be laid down on the cross. Sometimes you see pictures of rope around him, and that's to try to show that nobody would fight against this. The flogged, beaten, defeated Jesus was not fighting against anything, for even if he had the strength, he was fighting the devil, not the Roman centurions. And he laid there willingly, knowing what was about to happen. And what was about to happen was that a giant five to seven square railroad spike sized nail was about to go through his hand. Now I use the word hand because in the Greek language the word charis, charis, which sometimes gets translated hand, sometimes palm, sometimes forearm, is the word that goes from elbow to fingertip. So charis does not necessarily mean the hand. It's much more likely that Jesus took a nail similar to this right through his wrist. Now, this would be more effective because as you lift the cross up, you wouldn't want the weight from the palm to not be able to support it and the guy to fall off. That wouldn't be any good, and that wouldn't be a deterrent. But if you put it right in the wrist, right between the uh, ulnar uh, nerve, the funny bone nerve, have you ever had your funny bone? Imagine having a nail go through that, a railroad-sized spike nail go through the funny bone nerve, and it has big, serious pain all the time. It would also go right through the median nerve, which would send excruciating pain through the body. Excruciating is an interesting word. It's Latin, and it comes from uh, two different words. Ex, like exit, like exit sign, ex. Cruciation, crucifixion. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. They had to invent a new word to describe how horrible the pain was. And so Jesus, being laid down, had the nail put right against his wrist, and the nail was pounded through. Breaking skin, going through, severing all kinds of things. But it's not very bloody, the wrists. The wrists wouldn't have bled too much. And that's okay, 
because the blood has already been spilled and more will be spilled. And Jesus has excruciating pain on both sides. And then his feet are nailed. Now some people think that his feet would have been nailed straight in front of him. And that's possible, but you would need a really long nail to make that happen. In fact, the only archaeological evidence we have of a crucified man is when his feet are around the stipes, the vertical part of the cross, and sort of like he's straddling it and then nailed to the sides of it. We have archaeological evidence for that. And so it's, it could have been either one, but the point is the pain would have been excruciating down through the ankle as well. And now, when you're on the cross, then they would lift you up and drop you down. And now, lifted a little bit above everybody, Jesus would be hanging in a position like this. Gravity does its work and he starts to slump down. This makes it hard to breathe. And so in order to get a good breath, Jesus has to lift up with his feet. We know this to be the case because later in the Gospel of John, finding out, wanting to expedite the death of these guys, because sometimes crucified people could stay on the cross for up to three days so that everybody walking by could mock them and everybody walking by could spit on them and everybody could see how horrible it was. But they wanted to get them dead before Passover. And so the centurions come by and break their legs so they can't stand up on anything. And then asphyxiation comes and they die. So Jesus is struggling for breath, and every time he lifts up, the back of the wood goes against his exposed flesh, causing even more pain. But Jesus didn't die just by asphyxiation. We know this to be the case. Jesus died because of shock. Jesus died because of shock. It was hard to breathe, but he gives all out, and when the centurions come later to make sure he's dead, and they stab him, blood and water flows out. We know that Jesus was hanging there on the cross, and it was very, very horrible. Can you see? Well, this was all to fulfill prophecy. Psalm 22, verse 16 says, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. The kind of death that Jesus would die was prophesied hundreds of years before the type of Jesus' death was even invented. Psalm 22 was written long before the Roman Empire had ever discovered or invented crucifixion. And yet, the Holy Spirit is inspiring the prophetic way Jesus will die hundreds of years before he dies. Can you see the love of God driving the death of God? Well, we continue on in verse 24 says, Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. This is also a fulfillment of Psalm 22. This time, verse 18. They divide my clothes among themselves and cast lots for my garment. Even the kind of brutality not done to his body, but to his property was prophesied. Verse 26 says that the written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. This was put on what is known in Latin as a titulus. It's a sign that lists the charge. John expounds on this a little bit in his gospel. It says in verses 19 through 22 of John 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, the common spoken language, Latin, the official language of the Roman Empire, and Greek, the unofficial common universal language of the day. Everybody knew. The chief priests of the Jews protested Pilate. Don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, having been pushed around for the last time, I've written what I've written. And in so writing, Pilate actually answers his own question. 
What is truth? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, died on the cross. That's the truth. It's not a charge. It's not an accusation. It's a mere statement of truth. It's a mere statement of fact. And God so loved the world that the Father sent His Son. How awesome is it that everyone in the world could read this sign? Because it was in the common spoken, the common written, and the official Roman language of the day. Well, Mark 15, 27 through 30 says, They crucified two rebels with them, one on his right and one on his left. And they said, If you are the king of the Jews, having read the sign, save yourself. Those uh, who passed by hurled insults at him and shook their heads, shaking their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In Mark 13, Jesus was walking out of the temple with his guys. And they said, look at all these buildings surrounding the temple. Look at how great the temple complex is. And Jesus says, I tell you, not even one of the stones of the temple building will remain. And everybody thought that this meant he was going to destroy the temple. But that's not what he said. And so they misunderstood him and they said, oh, you who are going to destroy the temple. Come on, why don't you save yourself? Well, verse 31 declares that in the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. But he can't even save himself. And they remembered how he saved the guy who was born blind and the guy who was paralyzed and how he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they remembered all the healings and miracles that he'd done. But he couldn't save himself. You're right. Jesus couldn't save himself and us. And he chose us. Jesus chose to go through this. And if he didn't, we couldn't be saved. So no, he's not here to save himself He's here to save us. Well, this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. For Psalm 22, the same psalm says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. That's the exact same language that Mark uses. They hurl insults and shake their heads. They hurl insults and shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let God deliver him since he delights in him. But God was not there to rescue him. God was there to rescue us. Well, we wrap up with the last verse. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Liars all. Sometimes we want Jesus to Rambo style rip his arm off the cross and take the nail out of his other hand and throw it right at the centurions, rip between the eyes and brutalize and kill all of them in a very masculine machismo way. Jesus wasn't here to fight Rome. In fact, 1 John 3, 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He was here to fight the devil, sin, and the punishment that was going to drag all of us to hell if he didn't endure it for us. In the most masculine and loving thing he could possibly do, he laid down his life for his friends. Can you see how the love of God drives the death of God? Come down and we'll believe. No, they wouldn't. These are the same teachers of the law who wanted to kill Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. They wanted to kill him again. They were not going to believe Jesus, especially when Jesus is here and the result of his action is to turn upside down their tradition and recognize that people don't have to go through them. They can go straight to God himself. Oh, they would not have believed. They would not have placed their faith in him. How about you? Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 6 says, God the Father presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. 
so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you place your faith in Jesus? The authentic, real Jesus who dies on the cross in a brutal way, whose blood is shed and who is not beautiful looking in the midst of his agony? Or do you just want to place your faith in the Jesus who rips down power structures and turns over governments and makes sure that you miraculously never suffer again? That's not real Jesus. The real authentic Jesus is the King of Heaven who stepped off His throne to take up His cross. Our job is to place our faith in Him, for then and only then will we, will we be saved. Would you stand with me as we pray?